Good morning. How's everybody doing today? You with us? Yeah? Uh, my name's Chris, and it's so good to see some of you guys who are here for the first time. Glad you came. Today we're in week two of this teaching series that we've been calling God for the Rest of Us. God for the Rest of Us is based on a concept from this book right here. You might have seen it in our lobby when you came in by a guy named Vince Antonucci. Talked about that a lot last week. Uh, I encourage you to stop by the table and, and ask the volunteers there what the book's about. Uh, it's pretty cool stuff. Um, it's available for five bucks. That's like 70% off what you could get it online or in stores. Uh, and then there's kind of a companion book to it called Devo for the Rest of Us, uh, which Devo is short for devotional. Uh, a great 40-day devotional journey. Like if you wanted to start today, you're just trying to get your feet underneath you and getting into the Bible and trying to read the Bible. Um, I, lo- I did it myself this past year earlier. I think I started in January sometime, and uh, I, can, I can vouch for it. It's a, it's a good study. So grab one of these before you leave today. They're really good extra resources as we go through this series. The whole idea of God for the Rest of Us is that God is for normal people. He's all for normal people, people with problems, people with issues, people with hurts and hang-ups, people uh, with broken past and can't hold down relationships and have broken families and are just plain dysfunctional, or maybe they just kind of feel blah, because I think that's how a lot of normal people feel a lot of times. We don't have to be super put together or super religious or perfect for God to love us or appreciate us or accept us, but God is for the rest of us, and so that's the whole idea. Last week, we talked about God for the hurting, God hurts when we hurt, and that's what Easter was all about, God coming down to earth and and, and providing a way to to come back to his wholeness and his fullness, and so God for the rest of us. Now, you might hear that kind of thing. Maybe you're here for the first time today, or maybe you came with a guest, uh, with a friend, or with your spouse, or with your parents, or with your kids, and you're here today, right now, and you've kind of given lip service or maybe just kind of ear service to church and you've sat in a service like this, but deep down in here, you're kind of like, look, this is good for you, it's good for them, but for me, this whole Christianity thing is a little bit far-fetched. It's a little bit crazy. Like, there are a lot of tenets of Christianity that people want me to accept that I don't know that I can truly accept. And if if that's you today, can can I get your ear for just a second? I'm really glad that you're here with us today. Because today, as last week we were talking about God for the hurting, this week we're talking about God for the skeptic, God for the doubter, God for the inquisitive, God for the person who's like, I'm not just willing to accept everything at face value and blindly follow behind something. I need to know, I need to have reason and logic behind things that I do. So maybe you're a little bit on the fence. I'm glad that you're here for that today. And I gotta tell you a secret. Um, I got a confession to make, actually. I'm the same way. Like though I, I grew up in church and, and came up with the whole God thing, I am someone who really wants to see the nuts and bolts of something before I can really appreciate it. I, I've got friends, and maybe you're one of them, who, um, you know, if something breaks in your house, you're like, oh, that's broken, throw it in the trash. Not me. I'm headed to get a screwdriver and take that puppy apart because it's not broken. There's just something inside that didn't work right right now. Like, for, I'll give you a perfect example. Recently, uh, we had a TV that quit coming on. And, uh, and, and a lot of people are like, oh, we need a new TV. I'm like, no, no, the TV worked fine yesterday. It's probably still fine, but there's probably something inside that needs to be adjusted or fixed or replaced. So for five days, I've got my TV gutted in my living room. I, my wife loved it. It was just everywhere. But I'm like, I'm going to save us hundreds of dollars. I'm going to fix this television. So I've got it open, and I'm not a TV repair guy. I don't know what I'm doing. So I'm like on YouTube. Who fixes stuff with YouTube? Anybody? Yeah. Like, we're all experts, right? So I'm on YouTube. I'm fixing stuff. And a a common phrase in my house is when my wife walks up to me and says, Chris, do you know what you're doing? (laughs) 
And my reply is, of course not. That's why God gave us Google. Like, I'm going to figure this out. So I'm on all these forums. And, and here's what it is. I, I figure out that there are five capacitors in the power supply board that are broken. I have no idea what that means. I don't know what that means. But that's what the guy on the YouTube video said, and I confirmed it. And so I'm like, yes, you know what I do? I get on Amazon, I order five little compact capacitors. I learned a lot about capacitors that week. And, and I figure out how to get them off the motherboard. I figure out how to solder them back on. And guess what? My TV works. That's right. I watched Carolina beat Syracuse last night. That's right. Um, here's the deal. That trait about me, that I've got to get down to the bottom of something. I've got to dig. I've got to understand. I've got to see the gears turning. That has often clashed with my faith. Because what is faith? Believing in something you can't see. Maybe that's you this morning. Or maybe you've got a friend or a relative who is just on the edge because you're like, there are some parts of Christianity that sure, I can see, but the rest of it, I'm expected to accept this on faith? Christianity makes some pretty major claims. Let me share a couple of them with you. This is one Jesus says. Jesus says, about himself. I and the Father are one. That's, that's a big claim. Here's another thing Jesus says. He says, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That's in John 14. That's a big claim. A lot of world religions, a lot of people would say, Jesus is a good man. He was a, he was a, 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 a philosopher. He maybe was someone who was a good teacher. But Jesus says, I and the Father are one. When you've seen the Father, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Uh, he says this. This is one of the most controversial things Jesus ever said in John 14. He says that I am the way the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father, talking about God, except by me. So all of a sudden, every other worldview, every other religion is challenged by Jesus, who says, I'm the only way. And in one of the Ten Commandments, God says this to the nation of Israel, but it's one that that we still uh, must cling to, is this. You may have no other gods before me. I'm number one. There is no number two. These are presented in the Bible as undebatable, undeniable facts. Though a lot of us are saying, do I have to accept this at face value? Where is the research? Where is the proof? Because as humans, we think, right? We reason. We rationalize. We also feel and we emote. And so for me to connect with something, I've got to really feel it and understand it. And we ask questions. Anybody ever had a two-year-old? Their favorite question in the whole world. Why? Why? Why is water wet? I, I, don't, I don't know. <laughs> it needs to be. Why do we have fingernails? I don't know. Why is my fish swimming upside down? Oh, he's not swimming. It's <laughs> that's, woo, need a cup of coffee. It's in the back. Um, took a second on that one. Have you got questions about God? Odds are your two-year-old why question has gotten a lot thicker. How? When? Where? And so as we approach big questions about God, naturally those, those questions from our humanity follow. And we need to have some evidence. We need to have some proof. I've got good news. God is for you. God is for you, the skeptic. God is for you, uh, the, the doubter. God is for you, the inquisitive. Because God hasn't left us with nothing. He's not left us with zero answers or zero explanation for who he is. Uh, This week, what I want to do is I want to take a look at a story from the Bible where this very thing happened to somebody that actually knew Jesus. Um, and, and, And he was faced with one of the most fundamental questions of Christianity, which is that Jesus died and rose from the dead. That's that's a pretty far fetched idea, isn't it? Let's be honest. I mean, let's just be real. 
when people die, where do they generally stay? Dead. Okay? Yet we find someone in the Bible who claims that they defeated death, and we meet this guy who uh, has got problems with it. And we find the story in John chapter 20. If you've got a Bible, grab it. Um, we've got some free ones uh, scattered throughout the seats here if you wanted to grab one. In fact, if you need a Bible, like you don't have a good one, keep it. It's yours to have. We give those things away for free. John chapter 20. John is in the New Testament of the Bible, which is the last third of the whole Bible. And the New Testament is the section of the Bible that's all about uh, the life of Jesus and uh, the origins of the church and kind of uh, just instruction on Christian living. And so we're going to be in John chapter 20. Flip over there, and if you don't have a Bible, that's cool. It'll be on the screen behind me as we get going. But we're landing in a section. I've got to give you some uh, kind of an orientation of where we are. We're landing in a section that happens. What was last week? What was the holiday we celebrated as America? Yeah, Easter. This section actually, in a cool way, uh, it happens a week after Easter, what we're about to read. So this is perfect, right? We're a week after Easter here. He's a week after Easter there. And uh, so just to catch you up, this is what had happened a week ago. A week ago, on Friday, a little more than a week ago, Jesus had been arrested. There was some crazy midnight trial, and through it all, he was uh, sentenced to an execution. Lots of people saw that. Lots of people saw the execution. They saw him die. There was like a parade through the city, of, through the middle of town as people watched the thing happen, and he's laid in a grave. That was Friday, but then a week ago, on Sunday, something crazy happened. These rumors started going around the city that they were in, Jerusalem. These rumors started going around that this guy, Jesus, had risen from the dead. It all started when a couple of ladies went to go find him in his grave. They were going to go kind of uh, be there and, 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 and do some after burial things with the body. But they, they get there to, to treat the body, and he's not there. The fabric from his body were all folded up. They were just sitting there. The grave is empty. In fact, this huge stone that had been in front of the mouth of the grave was rolled away. And then some of his disciples, his closest followers, they, they started saying that they had seen him. In fact, on that day, he appears to all of his disciples. And he comes into this room, and he's like, hey, guys, I'm here. And they're like, oh, it's true. You're alive. And they touched him, and they shook his hand, and they shared food with him. And he was really, really alive. And they all saw it, and they were all so excited except for one guy. One guy got left out. His name was Thomas. And Thomas wasn't there to see Jesus. And as the rumors begin to spread, and as people begin, and it starts spreading all throughout Jerusalem, that Jesus, Jesus was, was dead, and now he's alive. What? I've seen him. I've seen him. Thomas is like, I never saw him. We're going to pick up Thomas's story today in John chapter 20, starting in verse 24. Again, it's going to be on the screen behind me if you don't have a Bible. But let's check out what this happens. This guy missed out. It says, now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. I wonder where he was. Like, I wonder, like, he may have had an appointment at H&R Block. It's tax season. Like, I don't know what he was doing. He wasn't there for whatever reason. He wasn't there. And Jesus came, verse 25. It says, so the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he didn't believe them. He said, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hands into his side, I will not believe Remember, Jesus was crucified being nailed to a big board in, in, in the shape of like a T, either a capital T or a lowercase T. We're not sure which particular type of cross he was nailed onto. But as he was nailed there, he was also had some guards underneath him who were making sure he was dead. So they took a big spear. They jabbed it up through his, through his side to puncture his heart. And it said that blood and water flowed out, which is a whole physiological uh, medical thing just to say, look, he was thoroughly dead. Okay. And so he says, I will not believe this until I see the holes in his hand and I touch his side. Now, the disciples are pretty close, uh, these, these 12 men. And 
they had followed Jesus and been with him every day almost for like three and a half years. They were really close. I mean, think about um, some of the great coaches. Again, I talked about UNC just a second ago. Uh, the UNC basketball coach, Roy Williams. Imagine being a player that once played for Roy Williams, okay? And then he's gone missing, and no one can find him. And they're worried, and they looked up to him, and they followed him. He taught him everything. They looked up to him like a father. And then suddenly, he shows back up, right? And how are they going to feel? Woo! He's back. Coach is back. And this is exactly how these guys feel. And it's amazing when you, when you have this moment. And then have you ever had this moment where you try to tell somebody else about this amazing thing that happened to you, and they're not quite getting it? Like, they, they weren't there. This happens to me all the time. Like, if you've ever had children, and they're so cute. Oh, they're so cute, and you're young, and you've got young children. And then you go to talk to your other friends who don't have young children, and you're trying to tell them how cute they were, how funny it was. Let me tell you something. They don't care. They do not care how cute Boo Boo was. They, just, they do not care. But why? Because they weren't there. That's why we had this phrase, you kind of had to be there. <laughs> you kind of had to be It was cute, but it was, well, the way it happened was, see, what? Well, ah. So they go to tell Thomas about it, and Thomas is like, I don't know that I believe you guys. Are you crazy? Like, Peter, did you hit your head? What's going on? Like people, I saw him die. I saw him get put in a grave. There's no way he's alive. Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. He wants proof, 100% proof. And Thomas was not going to be convinced otherwise. It was on this day that Thomas got the unfortunate nickname that has followed him for over 2,000 years. Anybody know what it is? Doubting Thomas. If you've ever been in church and heard about Thomas, you've probably heard him called Doubting Thomas. But it's not really a fair nickname, to be honest, because he didn't expect anything different than any of the other people who saw Jesus expected, or any of you would expect. If someone said, yeah, I saw so-and-so. They raised from the dead. I was at their funeral, like, Friday, so no, you're crazy. Like, we need to call somebody and have them come give you a fancy jacket. Like, you probably lost your mind. And so it's to call Thomas Doubting Thomas isn't really fair. I don't think his friends called him that. But for, for 2,000 years now, that's, that's kind of become his moniker that he's been known by. But if you look at the story, what you find is that the other disciples had the same kind of doubts. Do you remember what happened right after Jesus was arrested? If you don't, let me fill you in. The disciples who had been following Jesus so closely, when Jesus is arrested, they know this is bad because he's being charged with the crime of blasphemy, which is assigning the authority of God to someone or something else. And it's, in Jewish culture, it was actually against the law. It was actually a crime punishable by death. Jesus is being arrested for this. These guys are guilty by association. The Bible says that they scattered. They went into hiding. Why? Because they didn't want to get busted. They didn't want to get caught. Their leader was taken away, taken away. All their hopes and dreams had been shattered. They had risked, many of them, everything to follow Jesus. Some of them walking away from their families who called them crazy. And their jobs and their livelihoods to follow Jesus. And they scattered. So Thomas having a few questions is nothing compared to what they all had done. In fact, it wasn't until they saw Jesus' tomb and later for most of them until they saw Jesus himself that they finally believed. I love what this scholar, his name is R.C. Foster. He's someone that I've, I've read for years. He says this about this moment. He says, the disciples did not expect the resurrection. Who would, right? The disciples did not expect the resurrection. They not only were not quick to accept the historic fact, it literally had to be hammered into their heads by the actual presence of the risen Christ. That's reasonable, Right? I need to see this person alive before I believe that he's alive because people don't raise from the dead. It's not normal. It ain't natural. Like, <laughs> this isn't what normally happens. 
it's reasonable to doubt this. So it makes sense that each individual group that saw Jesus had reason to believe that they were seeing him. What's cool is throughout the course of the next couple of uh, days, Jesus appears to over 500 people. Each one of them finding some solid reason to believe, most of them because they saw him and they got to touch him. This isn't a ghost. This isn't an imagination. Some people postulate that it was like a group hallucination. If you've ever been involved in hallucination, let me just tell you, it doesn't happen in groups. Okay, this is an individual thing. That's a real thing. People say, well, it was a group hallucination. No, it's not. These are 500 people, and many of them are in different places at different times in different settings. Yet they all confirm the same thing. We saw Jesus. Thomas wasn't the only doubter. So if you've got any doubts about Jesus, you're not the only one. God knows that. And he wants us to have faith, yes, but he doesn't want us to have dumb, blind faith. He wants us to have good reason for the things that we believe. Look at the rest of the story. We're going to pick up at verse 26. John chapter 20, verse 26. It says, a week later, so now here we are today. I said it was going to happen a week later. A week later, the disciples were in the house again. Thomas was with them this time. I guess he got his taxes done. He's free. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them. And he said, peace be with you. What do you say when you've been dead and you've seen Thomas? I don't know. This is what he says. Peace be with you. He's kind of like, guys, it's going to be okay. So it's Sunday. I love the fact that John includes the detail that the door was locked. Because Jesus is like, doors. (laughs) No problem. And he's just like, peace be with you. Ah! Jesus, don't do that. He gave me a heart attack. Jesus was like, it's cool, I'm Jesus. I'll raise you from the dead. No big deal. Okay, that didn't really happen. But what really did happen was he says, peace be with you. And, and do you remember kind of the qualifiers that Thomas said, I won't believe until dot, dot, dot. I won't believe until I see the scars in his hands. I won't believe until I touch them. I won't believe until I touch his side. I love that what's about to happen is Jesus is going to meet every single one of Thomas's questions and demands. Check this out in verse 27. That Jesus says to him, Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands? Reach out your hand. Put, put it on my side. And he says this. Stop doubting and believe. He immediately called Thomas out. And he met his challenge. You want to touch me? All right. Go ahead. Holes, holes. I'm here, baby. <laughs> I'm right here. I told you I was going to raise from the dead. And here I am. And I love Thomas's reaction in verse 28. Thomas says, my Lord and my God. Pause on that phrase. He may have said more. We don't get all the dialogue from all the conversations. That would be a really thick book. But the fact that he says this is huge. He says, my Lord and my God. For a Jewish man to call another man that would be nothing short of blasphemy. What did I just tell you about blasphemy? It's assigning the authority and the personality of God to someone else or something else. It is a crime punishable by death. But at this point, Thomas has seen all he needs to see. He's not worried about what anybody else can do to him. My Lord and my God. Something clicked. It all clicked. Thomas understands what Jesus had been saying all along. Remember, Thomas had been with Jesus for three, three and a half years. He had heard Jesus' authoritative teaching, and everyone was blown away by that. Something to this guy. He had seen Jesus' uncommon compassion. 
How could someone have so much patience? How could someone love the unlovable the way that he did? How could someone touch the untouchable the way that he did? He had watched Jesus live a pure and blameless life in the face of people always cutting him down, always trying to undermine him, always trying to destroy what he was doing. And of course, Thomas had seen the unexplainable miracles that Jesus had done. And through all that, there was some part of him that was like, I want to believe this about you, Jesus, but now you're dead. But in this moment, he sees Jesus alive again, and he says, my Lord and my God, my master and my maker, because that's what those two words mean. Your Lord is your master, and to call someone God is like, you are the maker. Let me ask you a question. What are your doubts about God? I am not going to stand here for one second and believe that there is anyone in this room who has no doubts about God. I mean, a lot of you might be at a place where you're like, I've had faith for a long time, and I've answered a lot of my own questions, and I feel like I'm in a good place. But are there not still moments where you're like, I'm just not sure about this? Maybe not about God and Christianity, but just like, I don't understand why this happened or why that happened. I want you to know that God is for you. He's not upset at you when you've got questions. He's not upset at you when you've got doubts. God doesn't want us running away from him. But he also doesn't want us running mindlessly in circles just believing him for no good reason. God wants us to know that he is believable and he has given us ample reason to believe. Jesus didn't cut down Thomas for doubting. In fact, he understands. He understands that it was a lot to take in. He, he can only imagine how horrific it must have been to watch the execution and to be there in the mourning process and to see Jesus' mother just crying her eyes out. Jesus understands that physical life and humanity happens. So he's not upset at Thomas at all. In verse 29, Jesus told him, because you've seen me, you've believed. I love this next sentence. He says, blessed are those who have not seen, yet have believed. This is kind of cool, because this is where I like to think that Jesus has given each one of us a cameo in the Bible. There's going to be a day where I'm not going to go visit everybody in their kitchen and let them touch my hands and see my scars. There's going to be a day when seeing Jesus in living form is not an option for every single person. But I still want to leave beyond a reasonable doubt, proof, evidence that I was here and I did what I said I was going to do. God is for the doubter. God is for the skeptic. God is for the inquisitive. God is for those who have questions. God does want us to have faith, though. He does. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 says this, Without faith, it's impossible to please God. He wants us to have faith. But, but here's where I want to go as we kind of get close to the end here today. Even faith needs an anchor. Even faith itself is not like a, a blind, just... We talk about faith, and faith is like, uh, if you tell someone... You talk about someone took a leap of faith. What it meant was they kind of jumped out on something into a situation and they didn't know what was going to happen, right? They didn't know what the outcome was going to be. But normally, even if you take a reasonable jump of faith in your life, you kind of know what could happen, right? Or you know at least some of the things that you do believe or you do cling to. Why are you stepping out on this business venture? Because part of you believes that, I think I can do this, right? Why did you step into this relationship, maybe this marriage? Part of you believes, this is going to be fine, Right? So, so there's some things that we can't know, we can't understand, but anytime we have faith, there is something that we anchor that faith to. 
having an anchor is everything. I got a good friend who, uh, he, he skippers this huge sailing vessel. I think it's like 25 feet long. I don't know, it's huge. But it's one of those deals, like it's sailed down to the Bahamas. And it's, I think he's on his way up to Maine in a few weeks. Like, it's one of these real deal sailboats, right? And uh, so he, he, he and his wife, it's a ministry that they run. And they go from place to place and they serve different communities. It's a really cool thing. I'm trying to get him to come down to Wilmington. He wants to give you all free sailboat rides. Uh, if he ever comes, you can tell him I said that. Um, but... Uh, I got to hang out with him once. We were hanging out at a river. Guys who were at the men's retreat recently, uh, the river that we were at, his, his sailboat was parked like 75 yards off, the, off of the shoreline. So just imagine us being downtown, and there's a sailboat kind of moored out in the middle of the river. So he's taking his little, little uh, motorboat, and he brought it up to the shore, and we're hanging out. We're sitting there on the shore, and we're talking. And uh, this is a laid-back dude. Like, he's from Kill Devil Hills, North Carolina. He's like this surfer dude. He's like the most laid-back, chill dude I've ever met. His name's David. He's just like... Yeah, man, whatever. Like, this is this guy, right? So we're hanging out, and something crazy happens. We're talking. He looks up, and he sees that his boat that should be anchored, sitting still in the water, is moving. Nobody's on it. That's his house. <laughs> I have never seen this dude get up so fast. Like, he jumps up. He leaps over some things. He's running. Spr- I don't even know what's going on. Like, I haven't noticed yet. He sprints to his boat. He hops in. He's chasing his boat down the river. It was kind of comical and kind of like, oh, dang, I hope it doesn't crash into a pier. But it's running down there. Now, here's the thing. For him, anchors are really, really important. Even a seasoned sailor like him knows that there are things that he can't predict. He can't always predict the wind, rarely. He can't predict uh, the currents. He can't predict the waves. And so for him, he finds security in knowing that his anchor is set. That's how he knows that he can leave his boat where it is so he can come in and do anything else he needs to do or go to sleep at night. Anchors are extremely important. And when he has that secure spot of his anchor, this is what he can find. It's pretty neat. He finds peace. I can rest right now. There might be wind. There might be waves. But right now, I can rest. This is the turn I'm trying to make here. I believe that being serious about God is that kind of urgent. Life is slipping away. Things are going by and I can't explain them. I can't understand what's going on. I need to jump over things that are in the way, drop everything I'm doing, and run and try to find something to anchor myself to. Because even in faith, there's got to be something to anchor yourself to. Thousands have people, thousands of people have set out to honestly explore the question, can I believe in Jesus? And what's amazing is the overwhelming trend that when people set out to do that, what they find is that Jesus is believable. There are books upon books upon books written about it. In fact, we're starting a class tonight. I mentioned it at at the beginning of our time today. We're starting a class this afternoon at 5.30 called Venture Basics. In fact, today in our class, uh, half of our subject matter is going to be, is the Bible reliable? And how can we even know that? And there's so many different things that we can know, and we're going to address some of those things. There's a book that we hand out at the class. If you want an awesome book called More Than a Carpenter, which is one of these guys' personal journey of discovering is God reliable and believable, uh, we give that book away for free at the class. So if you're interested in that kind of thing, just come tonight. You don't even have to commit to the whole week. Come tonight and see if it's something you want to stick out for four weeks. Um, but that's where we'll be kind of finding some of those anchors. I, I have found so many anchors in my life, as I've lived, and I told you, I'm a skeptic. I'm a person who wants to see the nuts and bolts and gears. But throughout my life, I've found so many different things to anchor my faith to. I want to just give you a couple of them, because I don't want to leave you completely empty-handed at night and like, just trick you. If you want to know, you should come to the class tonight. Now, I want to give you a couple of things. Uh, for example, did you know that there is historical evidence outside the Bible 
external histories of, that people have written about biblical events that aren't in the Bible. You can look through other histories, through other cultures, and find out things that happen. I'm not talking about like creation myths and things like that. I'm talking about individuals, kings' names, and battles' names, and people group names that aren't attested for other places except through these histories, and they line up. And so sometimes back, looking back through history, you might say, I'm not sure that this thing with the Israelites ever really happened. And then you look into another culture's history and find, oh, they talk about it too. It's a small little anchor. But every little anchor gets us closer to having something called faith. It's historical evidence. Here's another one. This is one of the most uh, convincing for me. There's archaeological evidence. Did you know that there have been over 25,000 archaeological discoveries that have validated the things that the Bible teaches? 25,000, over 25,000. In fact, they happen all the time. In fact, there have been archaeologists who have set out intentionally to say, the Bible talks about this situation or this people group or this battle. And if that happened, there should be this such and such evidence over this archaeological site, this ancient site. And they'll go and they'll dig knowing that they're not going to find anything. And then when they get down there, they find exactly what the Bible describes. There have been many archaeologists and people who have been on digs who have come to faith in Jesus because of what they dug up. Here's another interesting thing, that there are no examples of an archaeological dig bringing any significant challenge to a biblical account. That's huge. Like, talk about, I want to touch the scars, I want to see. This is on planet Earth. You can go visit these spots, and you can look and make your own conclusions. Um, it's incredible. Here's another one. Uh, as the, well, I'll get to the last one that I want to share today. As each one of these ideas come into focus, and again, I'm not going to give you all of them. We don't have time. I could talk for another three hours and not exhaust the list of things that could give you anchors to hold on to while you try to find faith. But as each one of these things come across, uh, it gives those of us who tend to be skeptical, or maybe those who tend to be cynical, or those who tend to maybe be doubters or just inquisitive, something to anchor our faith to. But perhaps one of the most convincing anchors of all. And this is one that, man, I, re- I really hold on to this one a lot because as I look through the Bible, I see that uh, it's, it's very relevant, is this. Thomas and the other disciples. The testimony of the disciples themselves. L- let me explain how this is an anchor. When it comes to the question of the reality of Jesus' resurrection, one of the most convincing evidences is the testimony of the disciples themselves. When Jesus was arrested, remember what I said they did? They scattered. Why? They lost everything. They were terrified. Their lives were on the line. These are real human beings. Imagine 12 men from this room who were following, some, following Jesus, and all of a sudden, the bottom seemed to fall out of that, and they scattered. Why? Because they're guilty by association. They don't want to be a part of that. They uh, had committed a crime punishable by death, blasphemy, The Jewish leaders in the area were ready to stomp out anyone who was a challenge. So it's no surprise that after the crucifixion, the disciples ran and they hid. But here's the thing that blows my mind. After the resurrection, after they had seen Jesus, everything changes. These people who had been timid, uneducated, uh, nobodies, are willing to stand up and make quite a ruckus in front of people who are more than willing to take their lives. They start churches around the world. They are constantly being told by Roman authorities, stop, stop, the Jewish leadership, you're wrong, you're wrong. And they say, look, you can say all that you want to, but I saw Jesus alive, and it changed my life. I'm willing to put it all on the line, 
They believed so firmly that to a man, every single one of them ended up giving their life rather than take it back. All of them. Some of them experienced terrible torture in the face of people who were just saying, just say it ain't true. Just say it ain't true and we'll stop. And they said, I can't say that. Jesus is alive. We've seen amazing things and Jesus is alive. And it'd be one thing for, for, for it to happen to one disciple. Maybe he was the rogue disciple who was like, yeah, I'm just going to stick with this. But imagine when one man goes down, two men go down, three men go down, and the rest of the guys are gathered up like, hey, how, how, how much longer are we going to let this go on, guys? Our families are being threatened. Our children are being threatened. Yet to a man, they stuck it out. To me, that's more tangible than something archaeological. Because I think every one of us can relate to that. How many of you would give your life for a lie? Yet every single one of them decided that what Jesus said and what they said, that Jesus had risen from the dead, that it was true. The very last man standing from those original 12 was a guy named John. In fact, he wrote the book that we're reading today. And I love how he closes up Thomas' story. In verse 30 and 31, he says this, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that he's the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Have you got doubts about God? Got doubts about Christianity and faith? Great. This is, this is what we're all here for. <laughs> we're just here getting through life together, but I gotta tell you something really exciting. God is for you. God is for the doubter. God is for the skeptic. God is for the inquisitive. God is for those of us who have questions, and he ain't mad at you. In fact, he knew it would happen. One of my favorite passages in the Bible is from the prophet Jeremiah, and he says this in Jeremiah 29 13. This is God speaking through Jeremiah. God says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Let's be a church that seeks God's truth. And you know what, we might, sound, we might find some fluff, we might find some church tradition, we might find some, some chunk of, of history from, from church history that we're, is like not even, oh, that's, that's embarrassing, that's stuff that should have never happened. But that, that doesn't excuse us from, I think, our obligation to seek truth. What is true? What can I anchor to? Don't let the boat drift, and don't be scared in the storm. Hop up and run out looking for something to anchor your faith to. Take it from me, a skeptic. God won't leave you hanging. God is for you. Um, I want to pray for us today. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for uh, loving us and for just giving us stuff to anchor our faith to. Um, And the more we dig, the more we realize that it's just a, a wealth of information and, and, and a wealth of evidence. Um, I thank you for the brave men and women who have gone before us who have taken the quests and, and discovered the physical things like archaeology and, and the historical things like the different historical accounts and even the philosophical and logical things when you start just to think about uh, Jesus' claims and, and uh, whether or not they're believable. God, thank you for that because otherwise I think that we would just be real confused a lot more than we are. 
Thank you for being the God who is for us and not against us. And I just pray as we leave here today that we can be inspired to dig, not be scared of what we might find, because if something's true, it holds up. We love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.